one of the little juice and wafer packets. If you don't have one, if you could just raise your hand real quick and uh, deacons and elders, if we might be able to get these hands once. That way we're ready here uh, at the end, but we'll be using this here at the end of the service today as we go into a time of communion. Right now, if you don't mind turning in your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Pastor Scott has been doing a series of messages on spiritual gifting, uh, and several weeks ago, he did a message on miracles, Uh, and I tell you, it really stirred my heart. For those of you who have been here for a few years, uh, one of the first messages that I spoke here uh, was about a miracle involving my son, Uh, and I'm going to kind of talk about that again this morning. So if you've been here for a few years, you're going to get to hear some of those details again. Uh, If you are new to Webster, and we are excited that you are here with us as we are a growing family, um, may I pray that this will speak to your heart. Um, Miracles are still performed today. Uh, As we've heard, uh, Dr. Ridgway talking up here uh, about his grandmother. You're getting ready to hear one of the miracles that I've been able to experience in my life. Miracles are not something that just happened in the Bible, uh, ended when Jesus' uh, ministry ended, or when his uh, disciples' ministry ended, when the New Testament was closed. Miracles continue to happen today. We just have to be willing to see them for what they are. Um, and many times today we, we look at something that happens that truly is supernatural because a miracle is a supernatural experience, something God has done to intervene into our natural world to show us that he is still here, to point ourselves to him, point us to him. We have heard from several people, Dr. Ridgway this morning, over the last several weeks, we've had people getting up in almost every service and talking about the miracles that they've witnessed in their lives Uh, or their family's lives, people that are close to them. And again, today I just want to share with you one of my miracle experiences. But let's open up with a word of prayer. Father, uh, I am humbled to be up here uh, behind your desk today. Uh, Lord, I pray that as we open your word and we read it, uh, Lord, we experience it. Uh, Father, that you will, in the words here of Luke, have compassion on us and touch us. Father, that you'll open our hearts to allow us to see you working in our lives, that we can see you more clearly for who you are, who you want to be in our lives. So, Lord, I just pray that you'll push me aside, allow your spirit to speak through me in these next few minutes. In Jesus' name, amen. In Luke chapter 7, I'm going to begin reading in verse 11. Luke chapter 7, verse 11, it says, Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and he touched the bear, and the bearer stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. 
And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all of the surrounding country. In these particular verses, Jesus is in the throes of his ministry. Uh, we see a lot happening. If you just look at the book of Luke and Luke's account of Jesus' ministry, uh, we see a whole lot happening. In this particular instance, so much has already happened that Luke tells us here in verse 11 that there was a big crowd that were following him. It was his disciples as well as this great crowd following him into the town of Nain. He had just healed. Why is this happening? He had just healed a centurion servant, a man who had great faith. The disciples brought brought this uh, servant to him and said, this centurion is a man of great faith. And Jesus saw the centurion's faith and exclaimed so. He's like, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Jerusalem. And he healed the centurion servant. He is taught about loving others. If you continue to go back in Luke, he's taught about loving others. He's talked about not judging hypocritically. He spoke about the blind leading the blind. Used a tree and its fruit to show that people can be identified by the fruit that they bear. And then looking forward has so much in front of him in this wonderful ministry that we know is going to be happening throughout the rest of the uh, book of Luke. But right now in front of him is this widow and her dead son. And that kind of brings me to my story and my son. Back in January, I guess it was January 2017, it was a Saturday morning. I was pastoring a small country church. Uh, We were running about 50 or so people every Sunday then. God had been blessing our ministry at that church. Uh, It had grown from about 10 people to to 50 at that point. Uh, We were a church that... um, you had to find us. If you were going to come to our church, you, you had to be looking for us. We were out in the middle of nowhere. We weren't on any major highways. Um, and so you had to look for us. So we were blessed in what God was doing. And one of our church members had just had a, a newborn baby. And so I'm sitting here on a Saturday morning and uh, was debating, do I need to get some studies done? I was still working on my Master of Divinity uh, or can I get some time out, a few hours out of the day to drive down to the hospital? It was about an hour and a half from our house uh, to visit with this family and their newborn baby. Well, no sooner had I started uh, contemplating my decisions and what I should do, God had different plans for me in that moment. I got a telephone call from my youngest son's mother, and She said, Orlando, I need you to go into town. Somebody said that they've seen Denver's vehicle, uh, and it looks like he's been in a car accident. Okay, I'll get there immediately. So I laced my shoes up, um, grabbed the car keys. I looked at Kelly, and I said, I'll give you a call as soon as I know what's going on. I'd been in several car accidents myself in high school, uh, one that put me in the hospital for a couple weeks. I was expecting going into town that I was going to find a son maybe that has some scratches and bruises, maybe a broken arm or something like that. We'd get him in the hospital, put a cast on him, and he would go home. Well, there was a lot of confusion. My mom uh, was a nurse at the time, and she was working in the uh, hospital in town. And so I called my mom up, and I was like, hey, I've been told that there's been an accident out on the highway. Uh, can you call down to the emergency room and see if it's Denver or who it is that they're bringing in? She said, sure. And she called me back. She said, Orlando, she said, I don't have much information. There has been a motor vehicle accident. 
uh, two people involved, but only one of them are coming here, and they're life flighting another one um, to, to another hospital. We didn't know exactly which one at that point. I didn't know in that moment, but the one that they were life flighting was my son, uh, and he was dead. Um, we, I didn't even know that part until a couple years after all of this, when the first police officer on the scene uh, found me, and he's like, hey, Orlando, he too was a, a bivocational pastor. He's like, have you ever gone back to watch the videos of Denver's accident scene? I said, no, sir. He's like, you probably might want to do that. And I was like, really? He goes, yeah. He's like, you can see on my, the video from my police camera uh, when I got there that we had to resuscitate Denver. Uh, in order to get him prepared to go to the hospital. And that just really shook me even more. I'm driving into town. I call the ambulance company, trying to find out information. There was a little bit of confusion. Uh, <laughs> you'll, you'll get a little chuckle out of this. I said, I think my son, uh, he's 16 years old, uh, has been in a car accident, maybe life flight. And they're like, oh, no, we don't have a 16-year-old. We've got an adult um, that's being flown somewhere, so we can't give out any information. Uh, he being 16 and me being his father, very tall, he looked like an adult as well, um, but they didn't have an ID or had, they hadn't pulled his ID out at that point. And so they thought that this young 16-year-old boy was an adult and wouldn't give me any, inf any information about him. So there was a conflict of information as I drove into town until I finally got up to the highway. Uh, by this point, I had finally found out that it was Denver being flown. He was being flown to Montgomery. Um, and so I had to pass by the accident site in order to get to Montgomery, to the hospital he was taken to. I was on the phone with my mom again. Traffic was backed up on the highway. And as I neared the accident scene, I saw his truck just banged up out in the median. And <clears throat> in that moment... When I saw that, I was like, there's no way he survived this. And I was on the phone with my mom. I said, I said Mom, I, said, I need to stop and talk to the police. She's like, Orlando, please don't. She's like, just, just keep going, just keep going. I said, no, I, I need to stop. And, and I'm grateful that I did. Uh, again, spoke to another. Uh, the first police officer on the scene is, was a bivocational pastor. Um, we were able to speak with each other. There were people standing off in the distance looking at me because when I got out of my vehicle, I looked and I said, that's my son's truck. Where is he? He told me that when he put him on the helicopter, uh, that he was uh, on life support, but was very much alive at that point, but he had no more information as we moved forward. We got to the hospital. Uh, his mom came in shortly behind me. Uh, we got into the waiting room for the emergency room, went up to the front desk. I said, I'm here. My son uh, has been transported here. You told us to get here as quickly as we possibly can. We're here. When can we see him? That what this person sitting behind the desk, I don't think that they realized the impact of their words, told me, especially as a, a pastor, they said, there'll be a chaplain that comes out with you and speaks with you in just a moment. And in my mind, I'm sitting here going, why in the world do I need a chaplain? Um, they ushered us and the family that was starting to filter in uh, into a waiting room that had been closed. Um, after about 15, 20 minutes, the chaplain did come out, said that they had gotten Denver stabilized back in the emergency room, uh, but it would be some time before we would be able to go back to see him. Uh, at that moment, they were uh, running CAT scans and things like that on him to see um, what potential damage there might be. 
Before they allowed us to go back, um, one of the emergency room doctors came in to speak with us. There's probably about 15, 20 of his family in the uh, waiting room at this point. He said, we've been able to do some CAT scans on your son's head. Um, Obviously, you know about the accident. Of course, we had all seen it driving up there. And he showed us two very large brain bleeds in the ventricles of the brain. Um, the ventricles are the in, very inside of the brain, very inside core. They're kind of hollow cavities, but there's fluid that flows through it uh, off of your spinal cord. Um, and there were two very large bleeds in there, and those ventricles were filling up with blood. They said, right now we do have him in a medically induced coma, um, and we're going to send him up to the neuro ICU. We're going to allow the neurologist to begin making decisions from here. So... Obviously, there's a lot of questions. What's going on? Uh, They allowed us to go back. I expected, because of the damage that they had said that he has sustained, I was expecting cuts and bruises and broken bones all over the place. I I remember when they finally allowed us to go back there, they had him stretched out on the gurney in the, the emergency room, and he had one little cut on his face from a piece of glass. But otherwise, he looked like a very whole young man. Um, nothing visibly that we could see. Um, for what he went through, I was very surprised that he looked as whole and as peaceful as he did in that morning. The neurologist came in to see us later that evening once he got up into the ICU, explained a little bit more about what was going on, explained that what Denver had experienced was very much like an extreme severe case of shaken baby syndrome. He was trying to cross the highway going to the movie theater with his best friend, There was a semi coming from the south. What he didn't see was that there was another truck on the other side of the semi uh, that was traveling faster. And as Denver went to cross over the highway, the other truck came out from behind the semi and T-boned him going 62 miles an hour. The witness on the scene said that his vehicle spun several times. um, And the doctor said that that spinning his brain uh, just started sloshing around uh, inside the cranial cavity. And then there's a curb that happened to be at that location. His truck hit that curb and began rolling into the median until it finally came to its resting place. Um, All of that jostling, his head never hit anything. Um, It was just the jostling of the vehicle and the extreme uh, changes in forces and motion uh, that did all that damage. He said, we're going to try to wake Denver up Monday morning. This was Saturday evening. We're going to try to wake him up Monday morning. Now, I knew my son. I mean, look at me. At that time, I knew he was going to wake up and he was going to say, Dad, I'm ready for a steak and potato. I mean, that's just the kind of young man he was. And so I was looking forward to Monday morning. Sunday came around. Our associate pastor filled in for, for me at church. They started praying at church. Monday morning came around. The doctors told us we're starting to take him off of his medication, so that way he'll hopefully wake up. And he didn't. Uh, They tried to take him off the ventilator. Unfortunately, he aspirated. He ended up getting pneumonia, uh, which caused some more complications. Um, But they said, we're still going to try to keep his medication down to see if he'll wake up. Well, Tuesday came, and he still wasn't awake. Wednesday came, and he still wasn't awake. Thursday morning came around, and he still wasn't awake. We couldn't get him to respond to any stimulus. We couldn't get him to respond to a pinch or anything like that. And so the neurologist said, it's probably time we take him down for an MRI and see if we can get some more pictures of what's going on. They took him down. 
to that MRI. It was early that afternoon. Brought him back up to the ICU. And the neurologist called all the family into the ICU, which was something that was pretty unheard of. Um, We knew that it had to be serious. And he said, I want to show you guys what we're dealing with. And he pulled this screen out in front of us and started showing us slide after slide of all the brain damage that Denver has sustained. Um, Dozens and dozens of brain bleeds throughout the brain. The two that were in the ventricles had stopped, um, but there were other brain bleeds. And he was like, this isn't looking good. He said, you need to expect your son to be in a coma for probably three months to a year. When he wakes up, he's going to need extensive rehabilitation. Um, he said he'll probably never talk or walk again. So a lot of the damage that he had <clears throat> excuse me, was centered around uh, speech zones uh, and those areas that, again, help a, help a person walk. He said, you need to know that your son's life has changed um, from this point forward. We didn't know what the future held. Uh, I remember that day and the days prior just sitting there going, why, God? Why? What I didn't know is that God had plans. That's what I didn't know. In that moment, just like in Luke chapter 11, or Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17, What I needed was for Jesus to touch my son, just like he had touched this young man here. I needed for him to have compassion on us. And to do a miracle that I didn't know was possible. I'm sorry. In Matthew chapter 17... In verses 14 through 21, we see another miracle that Jesus does. He heals an epileptic boy who injures himself often, is what his father says. The boy's father explaining in some sort of exasperation that the boy falls into fire and water every time he turns around. And he has to jump in and save the boy. I've never had an experience like that, but I can only imagine as a father, every time you're turning around, you're trying to cook dinner or you're trying to take the sheep out to the creek to feed them or the river to feed them. And you have this son that you love dearly, but he keeps falling into that dinner fire. He keeps falling into the creek and your concern every time you turn your back is, where is he? Where is he? Is he okay? And then when he's not there, when you can't see him, You wonder, is he still alive? And this father brought his son to Jesus, or excuse me, to his disciples. But his disciples couldn't heal him. They couldn't heal him. And the disciples came to Jesus and said, why can't we do this? And Jesus told them, point blank, it's because of your lack of faith. And that moment he said, you could do this. You could do this healing if you would just... Have enough faith. And he tells them that if they had faith the size of a mustard seed, that they could move a mountain. Now, I don't know about you. Uh, I remember being a kid and there was a, a show that I was very much looking forward to. It was a magician. 
And, and he was hyping this magic trick that he was going to do uh, on TV, live TV in front of everybody, where he was going to be standing on this island out somewhere. I forget where it was. And he was going to take and move this island from one location in the water to another. I was glued to the TV. I love magic tricks. I couldn't wait to see this. And so the night came, and I'm sitting there, and I'm watching this. And sure enough, he has his assistants go up, and they raise a curtain in front of this island. And with a wave of his hands, he pulls the curtain this way. And when the curtain drops, the island had moved out in the water. Now, when I originally read these verses, even as a young pastor, if I had faith the size of a mustard seed, I could look across the highway from us and go, mm, don't like it there, and move it, right? I don't think that's what Jesus is telling us here. This isn't a magic trick where a developer can come in and go, oh, I know I serve God. I can move that mountain. I don't have to worry about paying for any dirt work, anything like that. I'm going to be able to develop where that land is now, and it's going to be flat. That's, that's not what Jesus is telling us. What he is telling us is that if we have a little bit of faith, he can do some great miracles in our life. That's what this comes down to. In this moment with my son, we had a huge mountain standing in front of us that I needed moved. I didn't know exactly how big it was. I just knew that it was huge. Unfortunately, in that moment, even as a pastor, you guys need to understand when Scott stands up here and he preaches and he gives you his heart and he's talking about things that he struggles with, we're, we're human. We have struggles too. We have doubts. But in that moment, my faith was too small. My understanding of what God was doing was blinded by my own hurts and my own desires for my son to be able to see God's bigger picture. What I was hoping for was a magic trick. But God had something far greater. We needed the mountain to move, but what about when it doesn't? There were a lot of prayers happening over those weeks. Uh, at the time, I sat on the board of trustees for the Alabama Baptist Convention. They had sent a blast out to several conventions across the, the nation. I knew of almost all 50 states and four foreign countries where people were praying for our son. Like Dr. Ridgway, uh, power of prayer uh, is pretty spectacular. Uh, and when you know that there's so many people praying, it definitely helps lift you up. And I believe God hears those prayers and intercedes when people pray. But were we asking in God's time? Was it God's will that we were praying for? Uh, some examples that I thought of here, students asked for better grades. Isn't that right? Students, not you, not you, but students asked for better grades. College students asked for better grades, an easier exam. Let me do well on this exam, et cetera. We asked for money to pay bills. We asked for a better job or career or more customers for our business. We asked for healing for friends and family who are sick Maybe they're dying of cancer or have some other disease. We're questioning why and why now. We pray for their healing. We ask for better relationships with our spouses, kids, families, and friends. We ask God to take away our desire for alcohol, drugs, pornography, and other hurts, habits, and hangups that we talk about at Celebrate Recovery. Of course, the one that breaks everybody's heart is we pray for healing for children. In my case, a child that was broken, laying in a hospital bed, 
because of an accident, asleep, and being told that the future was bleak. What if we don't see God working? What if we don't hear God answering our tear-filled prayers? In Luke chapter 7, verse 13, I love what Luke says here. It says, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Jesus was right there with her in her moment of hurt, her moment of pain. In our moments of questioning and wondering, and why is this happening to me, God? I've been a faithful servant. I'm pastoring a church, and you're blessing us, and we're growing, and we're seeing people come to you, Lord, and I'm trying to be as faithful as I can doing this and working full-time and everything else. God, why are you allowing this to happen to my family? And Jesus was standing there right beside me. I didn't know it at the time. He was like, it's okay, Orlando. I've got this. You don't have to cry. We're all looking for those moments to hear Jesus. We're all looking for those moments where he touches us. He says, it's okay. You do not have to weep. In Matthew 26, verses 36, beginning in verse 36. I'm going to turn back there real quick. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 36. Jesus is heading out into the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he is getting ready to be crucified. It says, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In this moment, Jesus knew exactly what was getting ready to happen to him. He had already gone through the Passover meal and instituted communion like we're getting ready to take a part of here in just a few minutes. He was coming out to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray because he knew what was coming. And it's been said that he prayed so hard that as he sweated, the blood vessels in his body broke and blood poured out with his sweat. That's how intense his prayer was. And he's out here in this garden knowing the extreme pain, the excruciating pain and the death that he was getting ready to experience. But instead of saying, God, please don't let me do this. Father, I don't know that I can. He said, not my will, but yours. That Thursday night after the neurologist showed us Slide after slide of the brain damage of my son. I went back to our hotel room. Sat at the desk where I was studying. I was studying the lament psalms at that point. I had picked up a psalm and had read it. And here the psalmist was just crying out, why God, why? And at the end of that psalm, he sat there and said, but I trust you. I trust you. And I bowed my head in that moment and was just God, why? Why me? Why my family? Why my son? 
but I trust you. I trust you. In that moment, as a father, I put my son on the altar before the Lord. I said, I don't know what your plans are. Maybe he'll never wake up. That was one of the options that we were told, is that he would never come out of this coma. But I trust you have a plan. Or maybe he wakes up and he's 30, 40, 50% of what he was before the accident. I trust you. Lord, maybe you decide to completely heal him. I trust you. I called that my Abraham and Isaac moment. Where Abraham took his son and placed him on the altar before the Lord, willing to trust God as the sacrifice and providing the sacrifice knowing that God had promised Abraham a great nation through Isaac, and he's sitting here going, I don't understand what you're doing, but here's my son. It was a great relief. Because in that moment, I was fully trusting God to work. In that garden, Jesus put himself on the altar in front of his father and said, I'm willing to be the sacrifice. Was a week, maybe two weeks later, Denver woke up, started waking up. He was in the coma for three weeks, not three months. Um, we immediately got him into a rehab facility. The moment he was taken into the room off the ambulance, they were working on starting to set up. He had no control over his body. He couldn't talk. He couldn't open his mouth on command. He couldn't sit up. Um, it was like having an infant son again. But they began working with him. Um, we first just tried to see if we could help prop him up. Then we'd stand him up, and that, that didn't work well. We eventually needed to put him in machines and things like that to help him stand up. Um, we started trying to work with him on opening his mouth, chewing, things like that. And eventually got to a point, once he started getting control of himself, um, we could teach him how to wash his face and brush his hair and brush his teeth, uh, things that we take for granted with our 16-year-old children. There was... A friend of mine who came in, he worked at Samford University there in Birmingham, uh, which is a, a Baptist university, and he got to talking about mustard seed faith, because I had just preached about mustard seed faith at church the Sunday before, and he's like, Orlando, I've got an idea for you. He's like, what if in this verse, Jesus really isn't talking about moving a mountain all at once, he's like, but instead, one wheelbarrow full at a time. He was like, there's a theory now. He was like, I had a friend of mine that just came back from Israel standing about where they think Jesus was when he was talking about mustard seed faith. And what they saw was that there was a mountain that had been moved to make the way for a village to be built. And all that dirt had been moved over, filled in a valley, and provided a larger area. But that mountain didn't move all at once. And Jesus standing there would have seen that mountain and said, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, then you'll allow me to move the mountains in your life one scoop at a time until they are no more. I turned around and I looked at my son laying in that bed and I was like, that's exactly what's happening in our life. Jesus is moving this mountain one wheelbarrow full, one scoop of dirt at a time. It was about a week after that, Denver sat up in bed one day and he was trying to speak. Um, if you guys have ever had anybody with a traumatic brain injury in your family, the doctors warned us that his first language probably would not be pleasant. And it wasn't. 
Um, and so I was like, well, hey, you're talking. Let's try something else. And I walked him through how to say I love you. Uh, I've got a video I'm going to play here at the end of this, and you get to hear those words for the first time, where he says, I love you. I tell you what, being told that your son might never speak again, to hear those words, the mountain was being moved one scoop at a time. God was working. In Luke 7 again, verses 14 and 15, it says, Then he came up and touched the beer. A beer is like a coffin or a casket. It was some sort of container that they would carry a body in. And the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. My son sat up and began to speak. And he said, I love you. And from that point on, it was really quite amazing what God was doing. We had experienced the healing touch of Jesus a week later, and you're going to see a little bit of clip of this. Denver's sitting there singing. Uh, I forget the name of the song. Uh, um, I'm only one call away. You guys remember? You're going to see him singing that. Um, He looked at me a couple days in between him saying I love you and singing that song on this video. And he says, Dad, I'm going to walk out of this hospital. I was like, son, we're still having to use machines and things like that. Braces to help you even stand. We're having to help you walk. Let's just take it one day at a time. Well, two weeks later, he walked out of that hospital. Um, It was quite amazing uh, what happened there and what God was doing. We saw Jesus touching our son. That mountain truly was being moved one scoop at a time. The question we have to ask ourselves is, why does Jesus do do this? In Luke 7, verse 16, it's because they glorified God. It's not about me. It's not about my son. It's all for the glory of God. Pastor Scott has spoken about this. God does miracles so people see him. To point people to himself. And we could finally see what God was doing in our son. People's faith had been restored. Again, there were prayers, lots of them. And people were sitting here looking at the updates that we were posting on Facebook and going, wow. It is amazing what God is doing in your son. This is a blessing. Pastors were coming up to us and going, Orlando, I can trust God with my ministries again because I see what he's doing in your life and the faith that you guys have had through this. Again, my faith was not where it needed to be, but God humbled me and we had that Abraham moment and other pastors be able to see. We saw people sitting in the ICU waiting room and God allowed us to be able to talk to them. They would come in from accidents or, or, or having strokes and things like that. And they're like, we don't understand. Why is this happening to our family? And we're like, we don't understand either. But all we can tell you is that God is here with you and he allowed us to witness to him. And the gospel was shared all across the globe. Again, at least the United States and four foreign countries that we know of. It was never about our son or us. It was always about God and pointing people back to him. And when a miracle, God does a miracle in your life or doesn't. We need to remember that it's not about us. That he has a very specific purpose. 
And that purpose is to point people to him. We're getting ready to go into a moment here where we get to focus on God. And we get to remember what Jesus has done for us. Uh, All I want for us to do here in these next couple minutes is just take a moment. Let's get our hearts right. Because we're, we're coming before God. We're getting ready to break bread with Jesus and remember his broken body and the blood that he spilt for us. But in order to do that and approach God appropriately, we need to have a right heart. And so I'd like to give us each just a couple minutes to think about what God has done in our lives, to ask for prayer, to ask for forgiveness in prayer. As we begin to approach this communion and we talk about the miracle that Jesus did for us here. Let's just take a moment. And quite, you can come up to the benches up here and pray if you'd like to. If you want to pray in your seat, there's no pressure. Uh, but let's just take a couple moments as we prepare for communion here. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 28, it says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We're going to take this moment here to remember the greatest miracle that we could ever witness, be a part of. Jesus was to be broken, his blood spilled, his father's heart broken. And we see that by 
God the Father turning his back on Jesus while he hung on the cross. And Jesus crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What Jesus experienced was no accident. It was planned by God from the very beginning. Yet it required his son to die for me, for all of us. In this moment, as we prepare to take this wafer and this juice in remembrance of Jesus, if you have never had an opportunity to accept Jesus in your heart, to truly know him as your Lord and Savior, this is the opportunity to do so. As we do this, what we're doing, that there's nothing magical about this. It's remembering Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus' greatest miracle. What is this miracle? That God became flesh. He came in through a virgin conception. He lived a perfect life among us and then chose and was allowed to be crucified, buried, and resurrected And he now sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven. As we enjoy communion together and with God, let us not forget that this wafer represents Jesus' broken body. And let us also not forget that just juice represents the blood that he shed for us. And let us always remember the miracle that he has brought into our lives. The miracle of salvation. That's what we remember. And that miracle in my life is so much greater than even what God could do in my son's life. Because while I'm grateful that he has brought a great healing to my son, he's working, driving again, taking care of himself. That's nothing in comparison to being able to spend eternity with God in heaven, even when I don't deserve it. I'm going to close doing something a little bit different than day, today than what we normally do. Uh, I know it's shortly after 10 here. Uh, I'm going to play this video uh, that we put together many years ago uh, for my son to say thank you to the people who were praying for us. You can stay and watch the video. It's about eight minutes long. Uh, you can get up and leave at any point. There is, promise you, no pressure, okay? But you'll see his vehicle. You'll see his recovery. Uh, And you'll see him going home uh, at the end of this video as well. But at any point, ladies and gentlemen, I want to say thank you for coming and worshiping with us today. Thank you for hearing more about how God still works miracles today. And thank you for participating with us in this great miracle, remembering what Jesus has done for us on the cross uh, in communion. Thank you.